From the DMZ to the NATO front, this is CRN. podcast i am your host i'm back baby i survived europe my uh my daughter and i had a grand old time uh i am grateful that before i left i dropped a bunch of weight and as a result my back never hurt my feet didn't hurt um the only time i had any pain muscular pain was on Wednesday my daughter said she wanted to go to uh, southern Denmark to a place called Mons Klimt and basically I equate it to the Danish version of the Cliffs of Dover and so we went on this little sojourn and <laughs> down to the bottom of these massive cliffs and it was something like 512 520 somewhere in there 517 steps down and 500 plus steps back up i now know why you see marathoners that collapse within 50 yards of the finish line because their muscles are so taxed, their brain says go, and their muscles say, screw you, we're going to fall down right here. <laughs> I didn't fall down, but there were some, some sections of those stairs that I was within four or five steps of uh, a landing where you could you know, rest, you could catch your breath, get some water, and the, the heat the burn that was being generated in my thighs was to the point where my brain was saying, it's only four more steps, let's go. But my legs were feeling like they weighed thousands of pounds. And it was almost like, I don't know if I can lift my foot up eight inches to get to the next tread. So that was fun. Um, my thighs burned the next day, uh, but by the end of, so in the morning, my thighs were just killing me. But by the end of Thursday, the pain had shifted from my thighs to my calves. And my calves, it is now, I'm recording this, this is Monday. Uh, the show goes out on Wednesday. Um, my calves are, they don't hurt anymore, but it took a good three days for that burn to go away and I was walking it off you know I was keeping the 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 muscles and the joints loose I'd go you know take a little walk around the block you know just kind of loosen them up but damn so we were at dinner on Thursday night and I said to my daughter 
Um, so I've been here five days, six days now. Um, how far have we walked? And, you know, she got out her little app on her phone or whatever for her tracking her workouts and what have you. And, <laughs> and her answer shocked me. In six days, this guy had gone 42 miles in six days. I would not have been able to do that if I had gone in the condition that I was in at the end of summer. So two months of thought, mental preparedness, two months of dietary changes, two months of the incorporation of more exercise, two months of, um, you know, vitamin supplements and things to re replenish my body, um, you know, eating right, getting the right fruits and minerals and um, what have you. And I, I was able to survive Denmark. But I'll be remiss if I don't tell you we are on episode 101. We are in week 93 of the 46 Quadrennial Hunger Games. And we have 13 days until the midterm election. Speaking of elections, uh, while I was in Europe, the British Prime Minister resigned. So that was shocking, and I need to dig into that. We're going to talk about that in the Jack Assery show. And when I got to Europe and into Denmark, they had, um, they're having a special election for the Danish prime minister because at some point they tried testing, I want to say it was the COVID vaccine, they were testing COVID vaccines on mink, and the mink died. And then they buried the mink, and then everything around the mink died. So they dug up the mink, and then they put them in an incinerator. That's the Cliff Notes version that my daughter gave me, but I have not read into it, so I don't know if that's 100% factual. However, she did say that by testing on mink, that is akin to... An American scientist testing on a bald eagle. That is our uh, national animal, and I guess the mink is the Danish national am animal, and so this caused a huge uproar in Denmark to the point where somebody in Parliament put up for a vote a special election. So when I got there, there were placards, basically... Um, you know, all of the different uh, parties, political parties within Denmark, had put up five or six candidates. There are like 20 or 30 people that are vying for the uh, prime minister uh, job. And so the way that Danish elections work, you can only put up a picture of yourself with your name and your political party. And then it is up to the Danish citizen to go to the appropriate website for the appropriate political party for the appropriate candidate within that political party to read their platform. That is how Danish political figures uh, go out and campaign. 
That's, that was weird. That was weird to me. The posters are on anything that's vertical. They zip tie them to, to, to lampposts, street posts. They zip tie them to trees. They're stacked, you know, four high. And these aren't small. They're, I would say they're good two foot by foot and a half average. Um, so they're everywhere. And another thing, so that didn't bother me. It didn't bother me at all. I like politics, and I, I thought it was interesting to learn more about um, different political uh, mechanisms uh, for other countries. And, and I did learn that most of the people that I was seeing on these placards, these were all members of parliament. They were all MPs, so uh, they were they were readily available headshots for the political parties, so they had these posters all done up no matter what. Um but the interesting thing to me was they interviewed the lady who called for the special election to try and replace the uh, the uh, incumbent prime minister, and they asked her what she thought about uh, the the existing prime minister. Should she keep her job? She goes, "Oh no, she's doing a great job." So, and I was like, "Well, then why did they call for a special election?" She said, uh, "The interviewer asked this question, and the the." The member of parliament said, well, she just needed to be put in check for what she did to the mink. She needed to know that that wasn't going to go unpunished. So they're wasting all of this time, all of this money, when they just could have given her a verbal um, condemnation vote or something to that effect. But, but instead, they decided to go with a special election. It, that that part baffles me. And... Uh, and oh, AOC got in on the action after the British Prime Minister stepped down. And and uh, so we're going to talk about AOC and, and the British PM stepping down on, on, on the weekend show. And uh, But this is the preparedness show. And I thought I would talk to you about Denmark beyond the politics. Uh, Denmark is a beautiful country. Um, I figured out the, the metro and the S-Togs. And the regional lines, which are basically, to me, to an American going to Denmark and seeing all of those different modes of transportation that are on the rail, to me, they're all trains. They're all metros. But my daughter, who is one to constantly correct somebody if they get the words wrong, <laughs> she was like, no, Dad, that's an s -tope. No, Dad, that's a regional train. No, Dad, that's you know, just so on and so forth. So I like to, I like to needle her. Uh, but it was a great trip. Uh, I went full native. I ate whatever the Danish people eat. And here's my, here's my impression of the Danish people. All right, so we went all over Denmark, mostly Copenhagen, but we went out of the city. We went to other places, and um, I got a rental car. And here's what I tell you. If you're going to go to a foreign country and you're not going to leave the city that you're going to, don't bother getting a rental car. Go with public transportation. Because European cities, um, cars are an afterthought. And what I mean by that, and here's my example. So in, in Copenhagen, you may be driving down a road, all right? Well, space is at a premium, and there's construction everywhere. Um, but bikes, bicycles take the first priority. There are bike lanes on every street, and it doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, been lined that way by the streets department or whatever. Bikes take priority. Then come pedest pedestrians then come cars. So if I wanted to turn into my hotel uh, off of the road, I had to 
check my mirrors and make sure there were no bicycles coming up from behind me. And I needed to check and make sure that there were no pedestrians on the sidewalk. So I'm coming up the street and I have to turn and cross over the bike path, cross over the sidewalk to get into the parking lot for the hotel. If I hit anybody making that turn, I am 100% immediately at fault. Welcome to Denmark. The Danes are also fascinated with pizza and hamburgers. I, we were all over the place. And that is what is there. It's like Frank's Pizza Palace and, you know, these burgers and this burger. And, and it was the strangest thing. The food was delicious. I had uh, smorgasbord which is uh, basically a Danish dish. It's basically a piece of bread, and then they pile food on top of it. <laughs> and it it's basically an American open-faced sandwich. That's a smorgasbord. Uh, there was delicious. Uh, they're, they're definitely fascinated with uh, French fries and, and all manner of toppings, particularly mayonnaise. Uh, I noticed that when I was in uh, the Netherlands uh, a decade or more ago. Um, so there are different oddities, things like that. Um, but that's, that's how they roll. So what I noticed is that a lot of the meals that we had were high caloric meals. And there's a reason for that. Because every Danish citizen is basically a semi-professional athlete. They bike everywhere. They walk everywhere. Even if it's just to get to the metro and back... They walk from their apartment or their house. They go to the metro station. They ride the metro into the city. Then they get out of the train, and then they walk to their place of employment. But at a minimum, they're walking five, six miles a day. I would say. That's a that's my estimate. Some, I mean, elderly people, maybe they're doing less. But one of the things that I noticed is that from a preparedness standpoint, Okay, here's what I saw in Denmark. The trains are electric. So if they have an energy crisis, some sort of problem generating electricity, they're, I'm, I'm no, I don't want to say they're stranded, but they're going to have to basically bike everywhere and not utilize the trains. And would, I, I, if you are preparedness-minded and your concerns are uh, energy-related, whether that's an EMP or a societal collapse to the point where you can't get any more gasoline or diesel for your vehicle and you are on foot, um, with what I saw in Denmark when it comes to the bicycles, um, there are all manner of attachment that you can buy for your bicycle. I saw uh, bikes that had a giant uh, like wooden box in the front of it, and that's where the children sit. Um, there were also, uh, you know, the, the kid seats that, you know, sit on the handlebars or they sit on the on the behind the, the rider. Um, I saw uh, basically uh, it was like an elderly chair. So somebody was, somebody had put their mother in the chair, somebody who can't get around as much. So they just put them on the front of the bicycle and they just ride around. Um, 
I saw all manner of saddlebag and panners. Um, so look up Danish bicycles and Danish bicycle attachments, and you'll get a really good idea of the types of things that you can buy or make that can attach to your bicycle. Now, granted, you're limited in terms of your load based off of the tires that you have uh, and your ability to provide. Uh, provide forward locomotion through the pedals, um, but it was crazy. I I had I got tons of ideas about attachments that I can get for my mountain bikes as a means of of evac if I need to get out of out of this neighborhood, um, and a vehicle is not an option. Um, what else did I notice? Oh my God, I just went. My brain just went blank. Um, so the food, the bicycles, uh, oh, so one of the things, you know, because my brain's constantly working on, okay, how can I get home from here? And if there's a, if there's an issue. So on, uh, one of our many tours of where my daughter is showing me around, uh, Copenhagen, um, she took me over to where the little mermaid statue is that inspired the you know, different books and movies and what have you. Um, I think it was put there after the original Little Mermaid came out. I, I don't know. I don't remember the history of it. But um, while we were there, there was a dock. Uh, and parked at that dock was a de Havilland seaplane. And I, my brain immediately clicked on. It was like, that's it. That's how I'm getting out of Denmark. If the shit hits the fan, I'm going to commandeer that plane and we're going to go someplace where I can get to a boat that I can cross the Atlantic. Because I can't cross the Atlantic in that plane. Then, we went around the corner. Lo and behold, there's a marina. And in that marina was all manner of seagoing vessel. Uh, some of them were pretty good size. And all of them had the ability to run under sail. And I thought, well, maybe I don't need to, you know kidnap that pilot to go take that plane to go somewhere. I can just hop on one of these boats and we can get out of here. Um, so that's how my brain works. You know? I was like, okay, if something goes wrong, how do I get home? What can I do? I've read a lot of books and, you know, I don't have any weapons. Um, so how do I, you know, I'm going to have to sweet talk my way onto this boat with my daughter and, and, uh, you know, so I, you know, I found a seaplane. I found I found boats that had sailboats, um, and you know it was it was pretty. It was that's how just how my brain works. But when I got home, I gave my wife a hug and a kiss, and I went and checked on my preps, made sure they were all still there, and she didn't sell them. <laughs> so, but that was a lot of fun. I got uh, a lot of good quality time with my daughter. I I I walked forty two miles. And the only time it hurt was because I went up and down the equivalent of... So basically, 500 plus stair treads is the equivalent, if you go... It's, it's, it's the equivalent of taking the elevator to the 40th floor of an office building, walking down to the lobby, and then walking back up to the 40th floor. That's how far of a walk those uh, stairs were to get to the, the, the beach at the bottom of the Mons Clint Cliffs. So, all in all, it was a good trip. Um, I got a lot of 
I got a lot of steps in. <laughs> All right, let me check my email. Let's see what we got. Next. Okay, so here's something that I saw, um, which is towing the line and, and going back and forth over the line between preparedness and jackassery. So it deals with politics, and I have a, uh, a little video that I'm going to play the soundbite for. But let's let, let me play the video, and then you'll then we'll talk. Oh, I got the. Uh, and we'll talk about it. Midterms right around the corner, there's a massive mistake that you need to know about. Five months ago, the U.S. Census Bureau came out and they admitted to miscounting the populations in 14 different states. Now, you might be asking yourself, why didn't the media cover this? Well, let's take a look at the states. The Census Bureau admitted to overcounting Hawaii, Delaware, Rhode Island, Minnesota, New York, and Massachusetts, while at the same time they admitted to undercounting Texas, Florida, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, as well as Illinois. Isn't that interesting? All of the overcounted states voted blue in 2020, while five out of the six undercounted states voted red. And this has massive implications because the census determines how many seats in Congress a state gets, as well as how many electoral votes they get. Meaning that if this mistake wasn't made, it's entirely possible that states like Texas would have gained an extra seat, while states like New York would have lost an extra seat. However, despite the Bureau having officially admitted their mistake, well, there's nothing that can be done right now, short of a Supreme Court challenge. Do you think this was truly done by mistake? Leave your... So, <laughs> this has major implications for for us as a population because it shows the lengths to which the left will go to ensure their grip on power regardless of who is in the White House. Because they're playing the long game and they're playing the odds and they're saying, okay, well, you know, we have to do a census every 10 years. But we have so many people in positions of power and authority that we can eh, make adjustments. So what does that mean to you and me? Well, what that means is they have more seats. So the Republicans and the GOP, because it's a two-party system in this country right now, they have to go out and spend more money on ad buys, on campaigns, on mailers and all of that in order to go flip that many more seats in order to regain control of the House and Senate. They basically are handing the American people a fixed deck and wondering why they can't win. Why we the people can't win. I've said it before. We need a candidate that is going to go up onto a stage and say, I am for term limits. I am for the banning of all stock trading for members of Congress, their immediate families, and so on and so forth. My seven planks to a successful campaign. We need to do that. The reason we need to do that, we need to find that candidate, is because not, and, and not just that candidate. We need to find candidates that will buy in and support those planks. They need to put a check on themselves, and the people that are currently in Congress will never do that. They're going into the Congress uh, from everyday jobs. 
AOC is a bartender, and she gets into the Congress. She makes $120,000 a year, and somehow, when she is voted out of office or retires, when she's 65, 70 years old, she's a multimillionaire several times over. How is that possible? When you only make $120,000, $130,000 a year, how do you come out after 10 years as a multimillionaire with $25 million in the bank if you didn't do something illegal, something nefarious? I just... These people that are in charge, that are presumably running the country, do not have our best interests at heart. That is why it is more and more apparent that you need to become more self-sufficient. You need to not be reliant on any government agency or entity for your livelihood. I don't care if you buy 10 acres and you just raise chickens and turkeys and ducks and and you're using them for meat birds and you sell them to, you know, local grocery stores or you're selling the eggs or, or making down or pillows. I, I don't care. But you need to figure out a way to become more self-sufficient so that you have no reliance whatsoever on this corrupt government of ours. Next. All right, and to finish up, so actually over the course of uh, recording the show, uh, it appears that the UK has chosen their next prime minister. It's a gentleman named Rishi Sunak. Um, he's won the race to be leader of the Conservative Party and will become Britain's next prime minister. Um, he'll be the third prime minister this year, uh, which is odd and unheard of. So our listeners that are in the UK, um, I'm, I'm curious. I, I would like to hear from you to let me know what, what you think of this guy. I'll be doing some, some reading and some research to find out what, what this guy stands for. What's he advocating uh, for the UK? Uh, maybe not in the Saturday show, the Jackassery show, uh, but maybe next week as more information becomes available. Um, there's also, um, I found, uh, two things. One is a ballot initiative, um, in Oregon. It is ballot measure 114. And if this is true, this is Oregon. You guys, I swear that, I, all right, let me clarify. The western side of the state, complete hellhole. It's total shit show over there. The west, the, the eastern side of Oregon, you guys need to secede and like join Idaho or something or form your own state because same thing with Washington. The people on the western side on the coast, they're all insane. Why why would you if you live on live in eastern Washington or eastern Oregon, your life and just your general pursuit of happiness and your taxation rates and all of the various laws are all predicated on these two cities, Portland and Seattle, and everybody in that city, everybody in both those cities have lost their mind. So 
you guys need to uh you guys should 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 secede from the, the, the those cracker pot cracker crack pot uh administration just ridiculous what's going on in those two states but in oregon the um ballot measure 114 is attempting to put a ban on amazon ammo magazines more than that have more than 10 rounds uh requires government permission to exercise your second amendment rights and uh allows your personal information to be added to a government registry so if you do live in the pacific northwest specifically in oregon there's something that you guys need to uh need to be thinking about because you need to get everybody out to vote that doesn't live in the world of the alphabet mafia in portland um it doesn't subscribe to all of the jackassery that is going on in that city um just if you guys could i cleave that city out of your state let it be its own autonomous jackhole of a destination i don't know uh and the last thing is something that just came across my desk legitimately um the u.s army has deployed the 101st airborne screaming eagles to europe for the first time in 80 years dave how is this preparedness well that looks like a really big escalation of the things that are going on in europe with ukraine and russia um the article reads the 101st airborne division of the u.s army has been sent to europe for the first time in almost 80 years so there's a clear distinction all right they were deployed in vietnam but vietnam is not europe that's why the article is saying this is the first time that the 101st airborne has been in europe since world war ii um Let's see, CBS News reported that the Screaming Eagles Light Infantry Force is trained to arrive on any battlefield within hours and be prepared to engage in combat. Uh, the 101st is a modular infantry division of the United States Army that is particularly trained for air assault missions. Uh, it gained notoriety during World War II for participating in the Battle of the Bulge and the Normandy landings. The 101st was reclassified twice during the Vietnam War, first as an air mobile division and then as an air assault division. Um, it looks like they're going to be stationed in Romania um, along the Ukrainian-Romanian border. And uh, they are going to be conducting exercises um, because of the type of fighting that's taking place over there um uh let's see here there was some see there it is um russia has gone on a never before seen aerial raid against ukraine hitting civilian settlements deliberately targeting energy infrastructure and causing widespread power outages russian troops are hell-bent on capturing mykolaiv and odessa's key ukrainian port cities and cutting off kiev's access to the black sea to combat the threat of russia taking these port cities by using its advantage over Kershyn, the most elite air assault units from the U.S. have been dispatched with heavy machinery. The NATO country of Romania uh, is close to Kershyn 
and the port cities that Kiev is protecting. This is definitely an escalation. This is a chess match. And the U.S. just moved a really big piece on the board. So who knows where this is going to go. And in closing, um, back to Denmark. When we went out and about outside of Copenhagen and into the countryside, I saw a lot of old growth forests being clear cut. Um, they were big trees um, and they were, it was odd because, you know, in, in the United States, when you see a logging operation, typically they leave the log at length um, uh, for however tall that tree was. Uh, the only time that they'll cut it is to make sure that it doesn't extend too far over the end of the, of the, of the trailer that it's being loaded onto. But all the stuff that I was seeing, the clear cutting of these trees, they were all being cut down to 8 to 12 foot lengths. Uh, I don't know if that's because of that's the way that they haul them over there. I'm not familiar with logging industry practices in Denmark. But uh, it, it did make me think and give pause to um, my thought processes in terms of what Europe is about to experience this winter because of Russia shutting off uh, pipelines um, or making Europe pay through the nose for what drips and drabs do make it through the pipeline. Um, Europe is going to have, we're going to hear a lot of stories uh, this winter about um, just the, the harshness of what Europeans are going to have to live through uh, without uh, fuel oil, heat oil. Uh, people are, are fighting already over firewood. Um, people are hoarding firewood. People are uh, engaging in black market sales of firewood. Um, you know, when I, when I was flying into Amsterdam, that was my layover. I went to Copenhagen to Amsterdam to Detroit, and then I had to drive home from Detroit. But when I was flying into Amsterdam, uh, there were windmills everywhere, and that's great. I am not against green energy. I think it's great. What I am against is moving or attempting to move to green energy too quickly without proven, tested uh, scenarios and backup plans. So... If you want to move to green energy, wind and solar, I think that that recipe needs to include wave technology and nuclear energy. Because nuclear energy is going to work no matter what the weather is. Just don't put it near a fault line or the coast where it can be hit by a tsunami. That seems to be common sense logic, but some countries are not employing that. But Europe, they have fully embraced this Green New Deal, this New World Order for climate change and, and what have you. And that's fine. You do you. But to go about that agenda without maintaining your existing 
uh, fossil fuel energy um, delivery systems, whether that's you know coal or or nuclear or you know whatever, um, it it just stretches the imagination in terms of how people can be so dumb because they're so laser focused on the end result that they didn't ensure that they could get to the end result without creating some sort of catastrophe along the way. Um, and that's what's going on in this country. Uh, Europe is about to have a serious wake-up call. I'd be curious to see what happens in their politics and their elections uh, next year after they make it through this winter, if they make it through this winter. I think you're going to see a lot of people die in Europe uh, that are going to freeze to death. It probably won't get reported worth a damn, but um, th th that's why we prepare. I always have at least, at least a minimum of one cord of firewood. That will get me through winter in Ohio with, you know, and, and I've got, you know, plans in place to, to basically reduce the square footage of my house in terms of what's going to be heated. Um, so, you know, we would basically shut off the upstairs. Uh, the downstairs would be our living area. We would, uh, well, the heat would actually go upstairs. So, um, you know, we could, in theory, just add some extra blankets, but we could survive the winter with what I have in firewood and, you know, some extra blankets and what have you. But it's not something I would want to experience because, you know, I've, I'm just like everybody else. I've grown accustomed to the creature comforts of life. But the United States and its population, we're going to experience really high energy costs this winter. Europe doesn't have any energy to speak of because they can't get it. So they're going to have to either generate whatever they can in, within the territory of their own boundaries, which they don't want to do. They don't want to drill because that would be against the agenda. So they're going to suffer for it. They put all their eggs in one basket after they were warned not to. They said, no, no, no. Russia is our friend. They'd never do that to us. Well, guess what? They did. So I, I don't envy you. Nobody does. Um, you guys are going to have a rough go of it. Now we're sending the 101st Airborne over there. It, things are going to get interesting in Europe, and I, I, I'm real curious to see what happens in the, in the coming months um, with winter setting in, uh, not only in the United States, but in, but in Europe as well. So we'll see what happens, folks. So strap in and put on your helmet. All right, that's it for me today. Um, so we'll be back on the weekend with a Jack Assery show. And um, next Wednesday, I will provide a synopsis of my three days of hunting. I'll be hunting on Thursday uh, for duck and goose. We'll do pheasant, quail, chucker on Friday. And uh, Saturday, it's back to duck and goose. So I will fill you in and let you know how successful or how pitiful it was uh, next week in the next preparedness show. So be good, stay safe, keep your head on a swivel. I'm out. Happy Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor.